Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome, everyone, to Full Prefrontal, Exposing the Mysteries of Executive Function. I'm your host, Sucheta Kamath, where we talk about executive function, self-management, self-regulation, and how to pursue goals uh, that self has designed for self with the knowledge that we are living in society and we are living in a collaborative ways we can make lives of other people better as we pursue our own goals. Uh, as we have often discussed, executive function skills allow us to manage our thoughts, ideas, and emotions to take proper actions, particularly in challenging environments and changing times. And that requires a great amount of emotional bandwidth. And uh, one topic of interest recently um, I came about was, uh, you know, this uh, handling stress and handling conflicts. How do we go about it? Um, you know, there's a HBO has a new series called The Gilded Age, and there were two characters who are neighbors. One is old New York money, and one is new New York money. And uh, the old New York money two sisters are disapproving of this new family that moves into their wealthy neighborhood. And uh, apparently, uh, the wealthy family tries to throw a party, and they borrow the butler, butler uh, from these two sisters. And one of the sisters is so upset that she stops talking to the butler and gives all the instructions to the butler uh, through her sister. And the silent uh, treatment continues for a while. And, and the butler is clueless as to what did he exactly do and how to have her change her mind. And as I was watching this show, I also uh, kind of what came to my mind was uh, recently in an article, um, I, I read that the hashtag silent treatment was trending uh, with adults uh, sharing their traumatic experiences of their parents abandoning or, or, or going in a silent mode. And that had almost 40 million views on TikTok. So with that in mind, what is this silent treatment all about? You know, so uh, when things don't go our ways or when we feel a sense of letdown or disappointment, it is our executive function that adapts and helps us readjust our mood, affect, and actions so that we can resolve conflicts uh, within ourselves and with other people so that we can stay the course and move ahead with ease and comfort. Um, but um, when one's own emotional pain is mismanaged, one can inflict pain <laughs> on other people through withholding of affection, interactions, or reciprocity, leaving the receiver uh, with a profound psychological cost. And that is the topic of our conversation today. Uh, the silent treatment can literally damage relationships um, or cause in irreparable uh, damage to one's psyche. Um, and that's why it's really important that we figure out how to empower people uh, to have or, or pursue some other ways to resolve conflicts and not to take away other people's uh, agency. So with that, what are the effective and meaningful ways to manage our own disappointments and letdowns and hurt by engaging in personal growth and emotional agility, you ask? Well, that's what our guest is going to help us understand today. So it's a great pleasure and honor to welcome Dr. Kipling Williams. 
He's a distinguished professor of psychological sciences at uh, Purdue University. He earned his BS from the University of uh, Washington uh, in Seattle and uh, um, his PhD from the Ohio State University. I went to OU, by the way, Dr. Kipling. Uh, prior to coming to Purdue, uh, Dr. Williams was on faculty at uh, uh, Macquarie University and University of New South Wales, University of Toledo, and Drake University in Iowa. He is a pioneer and world-leading uh, expert on social and psychological dynamics of ostracism, uh, which we will have him define for us. And one of my favorite works, he has written and published many, many things, but one of my favorite personal books is Ostracism, The Power of Silence. Um, and he has been uh, uh, an editor uh, of many books. He is also author of many articles, research papers, and has developed theories to understand this topic in profound ways. Uh, lastly, he is a highly celebrated researcher. He, uh, in 2012, uh, was a Lorenz Fellow uh, of the Netherlands Institute of Advanced Studies and was a co-winner of the American, American Association for Advancement of Science, Social, Socio-Psychological uh, and uh, AAAS and Purdue University's College of Health and Human Sciences Research Achievement Award. So congratulations and welcome to the podcast, Dr. Williams. Uh, uh, how are you? I'm fine and thank you for the, the very nice introduction. Pleasure well, to be here. Well, thank you for being here. And I don't know, um, I mean, there's so many thoughts uh, come to my mind about this topic, but I thought for starters, I would love for you to define ostracism and more importantly, how did you become interested in this topic? So uh, ostracism is uh, the ignoring and excluding of somebody. And uh, a group, we often think of a group ostracizing an individual, and that certainly is one example. But uh, an individual can ostracize another individual, and the silent treatment would be a good example of that. Uh, an individual can ostracize a group as well. Uh, and groups can ostracize other groups. So it's really just the ignoring and excluding. Uh, and I think both components are important. Uh, and, and I'm like when I study what I, what I do, I make sure that people feel both ignored and excluded to qualify as what I'm talking about for being ostracized. Um, a lot of people think that you study what you have experienced yourself. Um, there's a term for that, me search. Uh, th that isn't the case for me. Uh, I was a graduate student at Ohio State uh, back in the later 70s, and I happened to be watching a documentary on television called The Silence, and it was about a cadet at uh, West Point uh, and who uh, violated the the uh, a. A, an honor principal at, at the at the at the institute, so he didn't put his pencil down when instructed to do so during an exam, and that's violating the honor policy. So he was basically expected to self-expel himself from West Point for vi the violation. He chose not to expel himself, which he can do, but then they instituted the unwritten policy of silencing on him, and what that meant was word spread quickly. And when he got back to his dorm room, his roommate had already moved out. Uh, when he walked down the hallway, the other cadets would not look at him or 
answer anything he said. They would not talk to him in any particular way at all. Uh, when he went and ate in the in the uh, cafeteria, he would take his tray with food to a table that was filled with other cadets, and immediately they would all stand up and move to another table. And this silencing uh, uh, unwritten policy at, at West Point had been used for over 100 years and was very successful usually in being so unpleasant for the individual that they would leave within a week. So it was their way to basically drum somebody out. The reason this became a documentary is because this cadet chose to stick it out despite the unpleasantness, and he was there for another two and a half years. And no one ever talked to him or looked at him uh, in, in, any, in any of these settings uh, for that entire time. And he did, he, he did graduate and had a, a lifelong career in uh, the Army. Uh, but I've heard from other sources uh, that came out to me after uh, this documentary that he endured uh, ostracism even even after he graduated at all the posts that he took. So he's a life, he's experienced this in his job for his whole life. So I, I was fascinated by this. I, I was, it was very powerful. And I kept thinking, you know, they're not doing anything to him. They're not hitting him. They're not derogating him, insulting him. Uh, they're not sabotaging him. It's just a, a bunch of non-behaviors. They're not looking at him. They're not answering him. They're not talking to him. They're not including him. And, and, and so I thought that was amazing how a bunch of non-behaviors was so powerful. As, and I kind of vowed at that particular time in graduate school to study it at some point later on. Uh, I was already working on another topic altogether that was completely different, but I sort of wrote it down in a notebook. And I also kept my eyes and ears open for any information I could gather on ostracism uh, in those intervening years. And it really was almost, uh, uh, well, a good 10 years before I thought about it on how to study it. And it was another, it was 20 years from uh, watching it that I started doing research on it again. Wow. Well, first of all, that sounds so traumatic to me. <laughs> that and and what a resolve. So we'll talk a little bit about what it took to withstand that kind of uh, treatment. Uh, but you know, your own uh, longstanding research, uh, you discovered uh, that one of the most ubiquitous and and powerful means of social uh, ostracization, ostracizing, is one of the most ubiquitous and powerful means of social control. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that? And how did you figure out ways to experimentally examine the impact of ostracism? Right. So in my reading on uh, uh, why, well, first I found out that ostracism wasn't something that was just a human uh, phenomenon. Uh, ethologists, uh, animal researchers have, who study animals in, the, in their natural habitat have all reported that every social animal that we know of uh, ostracizes members of their groups under certain circumstances. And so lions and chimpanzees and bison and uh, you name it, every social animal, even bees, engage in ostracism. And so the anthropologists have argued that it's uh, if something is so widespread, it must be 
evolutionarily adaptive to engage in it. And so they, they concluded that, <laughs> that ostracism is really one of the, the ways in which uh, achieving civility uh, occurred, mm. uh, that, that uh, making sure that members of the group behave in a way that is uh, beneficial to the group and not dangerous to the group, uh, such that when a member does behave in those ways, erratic ways, bullying ways, or comes up lame and isn't able to contribute, that it is a, 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 an immediate response, not one that is thought out. It doesn't involve executive function because basically it's part of the genetic blueprint for these lower animals, that as soon as that happens, they, they ignore and exclude that member of the group. They won't go near it. If, the, if that member of the group comes near them, they walk away. And it's, it's very powerful to see this with lion cubs or with bonobo chimps and things like this. It's, it's sad to watch, uh, but uh, it, 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 it's something that it was widespread. So the, the, they are, the anthropologists argue that it, it keeps members in line. It keeps them, you know, if they start to do something that, that uh, harms the group, then and they're they're ostracized it one of two things happens it could mean that they are ousted completely uh and often with animals when they are ostracized in that way they uh die within a week because they no, no longer have the social support of the group they can't share in the the food and the resources uh and they become uh, easy prey for their predators so it's really a death sentence essentially um if it's a behavior that they can alter, uh, that's under their control, then then ostracizing can uh, get them to change their behavior so that they can be re-included. Uh, so in, in either way, the group remains strong, uh, either one member shorter, smaller, uh, or, or not. It, it's a stronger group. Um, that said, uh, and, and then that's been applied to humans as well, that being ostracized or seeing somebody else ostracized or just fearing ostracism is enough to keep people, you know, behaving in a beneficial way to the group. And it reduces uh, deviance and, and, and destructive behavior and that sort of thing. So it's, it's seen as a, by anthropologists as a, a valuable response uh, and, and one of the early building blocks to civilization. I love that, uh, as you said, you know, uh, it's ubiquitous to all the whole animal kingdom, and which is very powerful. And also, I think this, it is kind of a way to induce cooperation, because if you cooperate, then you're likely to propel the group's goals, collective goals. So one person going rogue needs to be ostracized because they're pursuing their own selfish goals and not the enlightened self-interest goals, I guess. Right. And then, and but then sometimes also it's not like a decision or a, a, a misbehavior, but like in one example, the, 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 the head lion of the group uh, of the, of the uh, pride was injured and was lame and couldn't, couldn't move as fast. And, and that triggered the response even from her cubs. And so they wouldn't go near her. And then she was left alone and then she was attacked by other animals and, and died. Uh, and so, you know, but it, it, so it's any type of behavior, whether it's willful or accidental, mm. that um, 
uh, will it, it trigger this uh, this automatic response of ostracism in lower animals. So, I mean, is it uh, uh, so? As you say that this is not in lower animals, it's not a thoughtful process. But with humans, it's a very strategic. It could be a very strategic decision to exclude. Uh, one could be to retain the benefits or keep them for yourselves, or to punish uh, the member that is veering away from the group, uh, from the group, or from even your own expectations. Right. So, how right. did you uh, how did you begin to study this? How 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 do you induce ostracism in a clinical or in a lab setting? So, so I focus and have focused mostly on how it affects the person who's ostracized. So I can manipulate, I can cr- cause ostracism um, it, 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 in, a, in a lab. And I'll tell you how I learned, I figured out how to do that. Uh, but because I'm interested in how a person thinks differently because of it, how it makes them feel differently, mm. how it makes their brain react differently, and how it uh, affects other physiological responses, and then finally how it makes them behave differently. Um, so, but to induce ostracism, that's another question: is how do you study it in the lab where you can get people to ostracize to see when will they ostracize and and who is likely to ostracize? That is harder, and, and uh, I'll. I'll I'll tell you about that in a little in a, in a little bit, but in terms of uh, the first part, where I focus on the target of ostracism, I don't call them the victim; I call them the target because it's target. Sort of, it's a less loaded term, and I call the people who do it sources of ostracism rather than perpetrators. Um, it this was a me search thing. Uh, I, I was out in a I was out in a, a, a field in about nineteen. 19- 85 with my dog. I was in a park and I was on a blanket. I was reading a book. We were just relaxing, minding our own business. And a Frisbee rolled up behind me. And I, I looked, I saw it and I looked at two guys that were waiting for me to return it. So I got up and I threw it to them. And I was fully intending to go back and sit down with my dog again. And sort of uh, unexpectedly, they, they started throwing it to me also. So basically, I uh, without words, they included they, you, included me. And I started throwing. So we were a, a, a three person uh, group throwing the Frisbee around and we never talked during the entire episode. Uh, but at some point after I got the Frisbee, maybe, I don't know, five or, or 10 times, uh, they stopped throwing it to me. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> and they just started throwing it to each other. And uh, it was, very awkward. At first, I thought they were sort of teasing me, maybe uh, a little bit, and thinking it was a bit a little bit funny. But it was then became pretty clear that they just weren't going to throw it back to me. And so then I had I sort of awkwardly went back to my dog and uh, you know became reunited with my dog. I used my dog to be to, to form a friendship there again. Uh, but but. Because I had this long-term interest in ostracism, it immediately occurred to me, wow, that was so powerful. I don't know these guys. I never thought I'd get to know them. I never thought it would matter in the future. But not not being included, uh, being ignored and, inclu- and excluded uh, from this very simple game uh, was powerful. I mean, it really hurt. And it was yes. it, 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 it was a... Um, kind of amazing to me that that it, it seemed so trivial on the one hand and so hurtful on the other. 
And so um, because I was interested in ostracism, uh, it, it immediately occurred to me that, hey, I can, I can do this in the lab. Okay, sounds kind of <laughs> cool. But uh, it, it, it didn't involve a lot. It was a very simple uh, situation that didn't involve conversation or any kind of setup. And I thought I could, I could do something like this in the lab. And so I, I developed a paradigm that I, uh, when I say paradigm, a, a co- common method of studying something uh, that first I called the ball tossing paradigm. And <clears throat> what I, what I had people, I had people show up for an experiment um, and I, they, they came into a room and, and then another person would come in also, and then another person. So there's a total of three people in the room, and I tell them that I'm interested in, in, in how groups uh, interact with each other. And uh, they'll here's the consent form. Please read it. And it's going to take me about five minutes to set up the lab. So if they just sit there quietly, I'll be back in about five minutes. In that room, <coughs> excuse me, was a box that said children's play experiment please leave in room. And there were a bunch of toys in the the box. And so one of the people in the room, because two of them were actually working for me, we called them Confederates. uh, uh, One of them looked in the box, kind of rummaged around, saw a ball, picked it up, looked at the other two people and started throwing it. Now I wasn't really sure whether people (laughs) would, would catch it and throw it because, you know, I had told them to sit quietly and wait, but, Everybody catches it and everybody throws it. Um, I ha- I've run well over a thousand people in this paradigm. Not a single person uh, chose not to catch it or not to throw it once they caught it. Such so, an invitation to play. Yes. Uh, most of them wouldn't talk, uh, but but they would throw the ball. And and then when the exper- when I the experimenter left the room uh, after I said sign the forms and, and sit quietly. I, I did something on the back of my head, which was actually a signal to the Confederates that said, this person has been randomly assigned to the ostracism condition or to the inclusion condition. Wow. And, and so I had used a random assignment table to tell me to do that. And what that meant was that once the ball started getting tossed around, if, they were, if the participant was assigned to the inclusion condition, they would continue to get the ball about a third of the time in, in that triad for the five minutes. Um, it usually involved eye contact and they were to continue making eye contact. And if someone said something, they were to respond, but they weren't told to talk. If they're in the ostracism condition after the participant showed that they were willing to catch and throw, uh, then they no longer got the ball thrown to them after about four or five throws. And uh, they, they were also not looked at any longer. If that person said something, they, the other two were told not to respond to it, to act as though it hadn't been asked. And they did that for the remaining four minutes. And then I gave people questionnaires afterwards, asking them how they felt, how they, their sense of belonging, their sense of uh, self-esteem, their feelings of control, their feelings of meaningful existence, and whether they're angry or sad. Uh, among other things, and we found very powerful effects between those two conditions, that those who had been assigned to the ostracism condition reported lower levels of satisfaction of their sense of belonging, 
self-esteem, control, meaningful existence, and they were higher levels of sadness and higher levels of anger. And these were really large effects compared to other social psychology experiments. Um, these effects are, are extremely large and, and powerful. And I watched the video. Well, at first I was watching the interaction behind a one-way mirror and I was, it was so powerful. I couldn't watch it any longer. It was too uncomfortable. So I, I, you know, I was videotaping it. So I figured I'd watch it after I videotaped and, and watching the videotapes was very difficult. And what was interesting was a couple of things. One, one is that when people were ostracized, they, they never said anything. They never said, Hey, how come you're not throwing me the ball or, Hey, throw me the ball or what's going on here. I, I was prepared for that. And I, I, prepared the Confederates how to behave if that happened. It never happened. As I said, over over a thousand people uh, were in this experiment. Not a single person ever said something. Uh, And then the other thing is that regardless of whether there are men or women, or and there's a lot of variability when you have a thousand people. You have people that are in fraternities, people in ROTC, you have older people, you have younger people, you have men, women, every every, all different races and ethnicities. So you have a lot of variety of people, yet the behavior was so similar for uh, people who were ostracized. They, they, within two or three minutes, they would be slouching in their chairs, looking down at the floor. Oh, poor things. <laughs> uh, there, there was a slight difference between men and women in general that uh, women tended to make eye contact with the other two longer when they were being ostracized and kind of hung in there longer, uh, smiling typically until they stopped and then looked down and slouched in their chairs. Men might were slightly more likely to stand up, look in their pocket, find something that kind of said, I don't care about what's going on here. I have something better to do. They'd walk around, look around. But within a minute, they'd sit back in their chair and they'd slump down. So it was just, it was an incredibly powerful situation that caused everybody to behave pretty much the same way. And the effects were so strong and five minutes which didn't seem like much when i planned it seemed like an eternity when i was watching it that i i had to figure out a way to kind of tone it down and not and make it shorter and perhaps not so strong because one of the other unintended consequences of this ball tossing paradigm was that my confederates who were really nice guys and who really cared a lot about participants well-being and wanted to shake their hand afterwards and apologize and everything initially after a couple months of doing this every day they only enjoyed the ostracism conditions and they were they were laughing to them so their their shoulders were shaking and it was clear that they were becoming a bit sadistic over time for doing really? it over and over and over again sort of like the you know uh gallows humor of doctors and nurses well they'll, well, they'll to, to, to sort of, I think, to uh, deal with the stress of hurting somebody, you have you end up making light of it or you end up doing changing the way you think to, 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 to soften the blow. So I didn't want to have Confederates anymore either. So I, mo- I moved from Toledo to uh, Australia and worked at two universities there, and, and I had these brilliant honors students working with me, Christopher Chung and Wilma Choi, and we developed together another paradigm called cyberball. And so cyberball is different from ball tossing in that uh, when participants show up to the lab, they aren't showing up in groups, but rather they're just seated in, in a cubicle with a computer. They're told that the experiment 
is interested in mental visualization and how it affects behavior. So for example, if you're a basketball player and you mentally visualize sinking free throws, will that make you a better free thrower? That kind of thing. But then I tell them, but not everybody's really good at mental visualization. So we want to make sure everybody kind of practices and gets some exercise doing it. So we're going to have you play a virtual ball toss game with two other participants who are in other rooms. And you'll see cartoon characters on the screen and they're animated. And when they throw the ball to you, you'll be the hand at the bottom. Then you're, <laughs> you, you choose to throw it to the person on the left or the right. And, and you just keep doing this for a couple minutes. We don't care who's throwing the ball to whom or how many times you get it. What we care about is that you're mentally visualizing. Where are you throwing it? What do they look like? What's the, if, are you outside or are you inside? Are you, are there, what's the terrain? What's the weather like? Things like that. So we encourage them to mentally visualize. And, and we, we did that because we didn't want them feeling that not getting the ball was somehow failing the experiment. We wanted them to know that the experiment was all about mental visualization and it was, didn't matter who got it or not. So, so um, and then in this case, the other two players are actually computer programmed. And so there are no Confederates and the, the, the program operates on a, a random assignment schedule. And so half of the time the participant gets the ball uh, a third of the throws and the other half, they, they get the ball once or twice at the beginning and never again, just for two minutes. So there's a lot of differences between this and ball tossing. They're not in the room with the other players. They don't see the other players. The other no players. chances of developing sadistic confederates over time. Yeah, yeah but it, it would seem like it would be less awkward to, to be by yourself when this is yes. happening rather than, than being in the presence of the others. And there was really no promise that they were going to meet the other people or anything. So it, it was, uh, I thought, it, much more... Uh, so, much softer, much less, you know, intense. Uh, yeah, intense. Uh, and yet, uh, the effect sizes that we got were just as large as the ball tossing. Um, uh, they felt just as the, the the threat to their sense of belonging, to their sense of self esteem, control, meaningful existence, uh, was just as strong as the ball tossing paradigm, and they felt just as angry and just as, as sad. So um, it, 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 it became clear to me that this is a very, very powerful phenomenon that uh, doesn't take very much to do at all. In real life, of course, when you're ostracized by your coworkers or your family or your spouse or your children uh, or, or your classmates or, or, or whatever, or, your, or, or the people in your church, uh, it's devastating. And it, it can be a day in and day out sort of thing that is incredibly hurtful. But we found even when it, you make it about as trivial as you can imagine making it, it was, it, it was very painful. And so uh, we, we get very strong effects for something that in the real world would be even stronger. Because then you're being ostracized by key people you care about, people that you have to, uh, you know, be with uh, uh, longer than than a half an hour. So we've done I don't know how many studies now. I mean, there have been well over 200, 300 studies using Cyberball, not just by me, but by people all over the world. One of the sort of accidental benefits of using Cyberball is that 
You can use it with six-year-olds. You can use it with 95-year-olds. You can use it with people from every culture all over the world, and everybody gets it. It's the same. Everybody reacts the same. And so it's it's an easy it, it, it didn't have to be modified much much uh, taking it taking it on the road you know to other countries uh, and and with with different populations uh, but we have found that it uh, you know it it consistently threatens those four needs and uh, if I could just briefly mention what these needs are again and maybe elaborate a little bit we have a need to belong this is research that was published by roy baumeister and and mark leary and uh the, what what makes it a need is that without it without a without a connection with at least one other pe- person uh you suffer you suffer psychologically and physically and and so it's not just a want it's a need and we have a need to maintain a reasonably high self-esteem and we have a need to feel like we have control over situations to some extent and we have a need to be acknowledged and to feel mean that that we, uh, that we are important enough to be noticed and so all of these are simultaneously threatened when you're ostracized you know you can think of other unpleasant interactions with people like if they call you names or if they hit you uh, but it actually doesn't simultaneously negatively affect all those things. Uh, you um, you could be in an argument with somebody, but you're if as long as you're arguing and they're arguing, there's still a sense of belonging. You're still yes. You're still a unit. Uh, you still have control because they say something. You can escalate it or you can de-escalate it, it by what you say. They obviously are recognizing you. They're acknowledging you. You're yeah. enough to maintain the 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 fight with with, um, and and so and they're not diminishing your your existence, like because right. by participating, you're equal. Even if you may be losing, but you're equal human. Yeah, and and it's clear that you're important enough to be argued with or important <laughs> yes. enough to be bullied or whatever it is. Uh, now, your self esteem will still probably take a hit. I mean, if they're disagreeing with you or they're calling your names or hurting you, but all four of those things don't get threatened. Get shaken up all at once. With ostracism. And so it seems to me to be, (laughs) excuse me, kind of a a unique, uh, aversive, interpersonal behavior that has this ability to do this to people, uh, which causes some really fundamental changes in how their brain reacts and how they feel and how they behave. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I, I'm not even allowing you to ask me a question here. I'm just rattling <laughs> on. So if you want me to stop, and uh, but I can continue. Yes, yes. Well, I do want to. Uh, it's all about you. I want to hear this. It's it just I wanted to share one interesting, um, quick um, anecdote. So almost I don't know when when your two students began to study this but I was at the um, SPSP conference which is the Society of Personality and Social Psychology conference and this topic is of deep interest to me this is probably more than 10 years I don't know but so they were presenting this data the cyberball uh, study research and uh, I mean um, our listeners may not get a chance to see this, but you have some videos, but the facial expressions and, you know, the EKG, I mean, all the psychophysiological, psychosocial changes, it's so painful to watch it. 
And and there was a, some, uh, maybe I'm not recollecting it correctly, but there were studies about actual uh, pretend to watch a cut being made on a person's hand with a knife. And um, the part of the brain that was activated with the, so this was not, no, no pain was inflicted on a person, but people were shown two videos, right? One was actual somebody getting inflicted with physical pain of somebody cutting you. And second was this being ostracized. And the part of the brain that was activated was the same region where the pain, physical pain resides, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? And that was so fascinating to see that we have a, of course, repurposed center in the brain that perceives pain, social pain, same as physical pain. Yeah. So um, we, we, through through, uh, self-reports, we have known that it's, extremely unpleasant. It makes them angry. It makes them sad. If you ask them how painful it is, it makes it, they, they score high on the pain scale. Um, and non-verbally, we didn't really know whether people playing cyberball would show a lot of emotion because they're by themselves. And sometimes we think of emotions primarily a way to communicate. Internal. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and but but we feel it, but we don't show it so much unless we're trying to communicate. But oh my gosh, people do show. Uh, I mean, in some ways, they're less inhibited. You know, like I said in the ball tossing, they wouldn't even say anything when they're by themselves. They'll go, "What the?" You know, and they'll swear and they'll push the mouse away that they're using or push the computer away. Um, one guy that famous now because we have the video clip and he's allowed us to use it. And so we've used it quite a bit. He laughs at first. And then when he clearly doesn't get the ball, the the ball for a while, he gets angry and um, he gives the finger to the screen. And and then uh, he looks really upset. And then over time, he looks sad and dejected and all within two minutes. Um, So clearly, and we, so we knew, and then when another case, we, we got people to dial a dial and indicate how they were feeling. Uh, and we got them to do this for 20 minutes prior to playing cyberball. So they got really good at it. And then we said, keep doing it while you're playing cyberball. And we found that people who are included, it's just basically a, a, a flat line that's around a seven on a 10 point scale. So pretty good, you know, feeling pretty good. If they're ostracized, they start at the seven. And then about 20 seconds after they, the ball stops, it just goes way down and they go down to about a three point, Four, uh, and which is a huge drop on a ten-point scale in, in any social psych experiment, and and this this happens within a minute and a half. So we knew that it was painful. We knew that it was unpleasant. But along comes research with where you use MRIs, and uh, I was at a conference in Sydney uh, with uh, two people from uh, UCLA. Um, Naomi Eisenberger and Matt Lieberman, who are just starting to look at emotional responses um, to stimuli when people were in an fMRI. And I was talking about ostracism. And then suddenly somebody in the audience says, what would happen if they were ostracized in the MRI? And we just look at each other and, you know, it's just <laughs> one of those moments. And so we started collaborating and we developed they, one of the, again, accidental good things about cyberball is that you can play the game when you're laying down in an fMRI scanner because you're not moving. You're just, you can just click with your, click, click, yeah. and, and so there the cover story is, is the same, but the cover story is we're interested in what your 
brain looks like when they're mentally visualizing. But really what we were interested in is what does their brain look like when they are ostracized? And what we found is similar to what you were describing for the talk that you attended is that the, the same region of the brain that is activated when people experience physical pain, when they put their hand in ice cold water or when they, they touch a flame or when they are, get a pinprick or when they, a vice is applied to their finger, the same area of the brain, the, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, which is a region that one of its functions is to detect pain and, and kind of alert the system that something's bad here and, and you need to do something about it. The sa- that same region was activated when people weren't getting the ball from two strangers in a virtual ball game. And so, the, you know, and, and this kind of put, I think, my research on the map in a kind of funny way, because to me, I'd already known this, but uh, seeing it, uh, seeing these yellow splotches on a brain picture convinced, yes. convinced everybody. So it's... Uh, it, 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 it and other research has used other methods besides cyberball and finds that even emotional pain receptors in the brain that that detect uh, specific feelings of uh, of pain are activated as well um, and so uh, social pain and physical pain it, we, it, the argument is is that physical pain in the brain evolved first social pain piggybacked on and used the same architecture and so the same things that are so when we say someone it's all in the head it, it, it is all in the head it's the brain and that's where we feel pain and we feel it the same way when, when for social things loss bereavement grief uh, embarrassment but ostracism as we do physical pain so you know one uh, interesting thing and and since i know uh, i watched a lot of videos and also read uh, um about the how you describe it one very interesting emotion that emerges first, uh, particularly in the context of silent treatment or first time when you encounter exclusion or that ignoring is bewilderment. This a small surprise uh, because you're almost expecting it to turn around. So there is anticipation that, nah, this can't be serious. But then also fear that, is it? Like, am I making this up, right? You were, even when you were excluded during the frisbee throw, can you talk a little bit about this bewilderment emotion and and also like this uh, feeling puzzled followed by this pain? I mean, you describe this two-minute window and you go this tank so fast. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like it takes so long to recover from such subjected negligence and ignoring and pain that somebody inflicts, right? So, I mean, oh my God, what a power people, all of us hold to include or exclude in the club of human humanity, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is powerful. And uh, so let's see, let, let me, let's go the back. The bewilderment first, I guess. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, there, there is this interesting transition period and we really haven't, I, I w- I'd say we haven't really studied this particular period. We've observed it, but we haven't kind of unpacked it uh, too much. But I think there's a violation of expectation, you know, Mm. in in a game of ball toss, the expectation is to be equal, is to throw it, you don't have to always throw it to the same person, but to roughly have an equal number of exchanges. And so as soon as you see yourself not getting it, you're you're startled. And uh, a lot of people smile, 
they laugh. They think it's kind of funny. It's like they're being teased. And, you know, I think if we stop the experiment right at that moment when they're laughing, they might even like the people more. Because, you know, there's research saying that uh-huh. teasing is a way to increase bonding between people and things like that. But then there's this sort of realization of this is they're teasing to they're not going to ever throw it to me again. And that's when you just see this dramatic shift in people's facial expressions and, and how they feel. And, and it's, uh, it's very abrupt and um, it, it, it's, it's difficult to watch. I, 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 to see that transition in people's faces, it, it's, it's painful. And, um, and in fact, we know that watching ostracism causes pain too. So, I mean, it, it, it's not, oh, no. just, not just the person that's having it done to them. The vicarious um, pain, yes. Yeah. So, so it, 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 it's bewildering because it's uh, uh, unexpected. I think when you're in a social situation in real life when it's happening, it's also extraordinarily awkward because you, you're you standing there and do you want to reveal your pain to other people or do you want to act like it's no big deal? And so then you kind of cover up uh, your expression as much as possible and you're feeling it all inside. Um, but it's... Uh, it's something that that powerfully and negatively affects people. And we know that it affects them not only in terms of their reported emotions and their brain, it actually makes them physically colder. So uh, when we have people play cyberball, we put a thermometer on the end of their fingers on their non-preferred hand, the one that's not using the the mouse, and over a two-minute period, they actually get significantly colder if they've been ostracized, if they're included, it's a pretty much a flat or slightly ascending line. So it wow. slightly warmer. So, you know, we have words, right? We say freeze somebody out or giving somebody the cold shoulder. Yes, yes. But where do these words come from? And you actually feel colder. So we know that when you are threatened, the, the, the blood goes from your periphery to your core as a protective reaction. I guess what we didn't know is not getting a ball in a stupid two-minute game was sufficient to cause this kind of coldness. Uh, it can in- increase uh, 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 other – it causes heart rate uh, disfluencies so that the heart starts to re- uh, beat at, at, at a, uh, different patterns uh, uh, that, that's not consistent with a normal heart rate. Uh, you see – uh, cortisol levels increasing. So there's a lot so of... So it goes irregular, but not faster? Right. No. Yeah. It goes irregular, not necessarily faster. Wow. Because uh, when you're afraid, it's faster, but yeah, when yeah. you're excluded, oh, wow. Wow. It's yes. something a little bit different. And, and you see cortisol levels increasing. So there's all these physiological responses. And then we have behavioral responses. So when people are ostracized for just two minutes, what do they do? afterwards how do they cope with it so my research model says that there's the initial reaction which is pain and a threat to the four needs and almost everybody shows this everywhere we've studied all over the world so i call those reflexive responses because Mm -hmm. they're kind of invariant uh then it's making sense of it and coping with it and that's where you see a lot of variability uh depending on the person's personality uh, and depending on the like the, the soldier in the at West Point kind of said, "I'm going to stick it out, right?" Until and I graduate. Whereas, whereas most people would leave, 
Yes, yes. And he's not the only one to stick it out there. Uh, General, uh, uh, um, oh, shoot, a, a, a famous uh, general uh, who came out of West Point um, uh, was ostracized immediately. The moment he, he was silenced, the moment he arrived, Benjamin O. Davis back in the, oh, wow. back in the 30s, uh, he didn't do anything wrong. But he was black, and they didn't want they didn't want him, and so they they silenced him immediately. He also stuck it out for four years. Not only that, but he became a general, so he, he, he wow. extremely successful uh, person. So there there have been a few who have have uh, responded in that way. In our experiments, what we find are three typical types of behavioral reactions, uh, or that that could be put into three different categories. Uh, one is to do something that's going to make you more likable, to do something that's going to get others to have you be in their group. And so people are more likely to conform to others, even when it's clear the others are wrong. Wow. So you know the ASH studies with the line. Yes, 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 of course. We, even when they're with a unanimous majority who's saying, uh, or when they're with a unanimous <laughs> majority who's saying clearly something that is incorrect, they are more likely to agree with them if they've been ostracized for two minutes by a different group. Not even that group, but by, huh. by a different group. Uh, they're more likely to be compliant. So if someone's f- fundraising and comes up to them and asks for money, they're more likely to give money and to give more money than if they were in the included condition. They're more mm-hmm. likely to obey a command that they, to do something unpleasant if they've been just ostracized than if they've been included. Um, they're more likely to non-consciously mimic somebody. We, we mimic somebody. We lean forward. If they're leaning forward, if they're scratching their face, we, we don't realize we're doing this, but we scratch our face. And research shows that when you do these things, you're liked more. And so at some level of consciousness, we know that doing these things gets us into better graces of another person. If you've been ostracized for two minutes, you're more likely to non-consciously mimic whatever that person, other person is doing in an interview. Um, so we, and you're more likely to work in a collective task where you're combining your efforts with other people and they, they, it's not even clear who's contributing what. Usually you take that opportunity to loaf, to put less in when, when that happens. But when you've been ostracized, you actually put more in than if you've been included. Wow. Or even more than you would do if you're working on it alone. While so, uh, all, all that you're doing even when you're feeling terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But presumably it's a way to end the ostracism. It's, gotcha. it's, and maybe not end the ostracism of that group that ostracized you, but to be included in a new group that will have you and want you and like you. And so I think this is the dominant response for this, uh, which is why it's ubiquitous, because one of the other responses is to become aggressive. Or provocative. So the or, first one or, was to do something likable, and the second is to become aggressive. Yeah, and it, it, you know, clearly, if everybody always became aggressive and violent when they're being ostracized, then you wouldn't see it being a universal tactic used on people because it would backfire, right? Yes. Uh, but there are situations, and we think it's situations in which it appears as though reinclusion is not possible, where you just aren't. You're, you're, there's no option available to you. And so when, when you can't increase your sense of belonging and self-esteem, which I think is the dominant type of 
um, need satisfaction uh, repair that you're trying to do, then you will try to gain mm. control and, and, and force people to recognize your existence. And ways to gain control and to force recognition is to be provocative. And so in several studies, we find that under certain circumstances, people are more likely to shock somebody else, not even the people that ostracize them necessarily, or more likely to give them loud, <coughs> excuse me, blasts of noise, um, get, derogate their performance on a task. Um, it's almost like a revenge. Yeah, yeah. It, but sometimes it's not even a revenge to the people who did it. It's just anger outward. To, a to, protest? To, to new people, to, to people that oh. didn't have anything to do with it. And wow. so, and, so, and, and um, you know, I have slides when I give a talk uh, that in real life we have these, unfortunately, way too many examples of this where we have people who are feel ignored and unimportant and uh, aren't, aren't included. And they apparently feel like there's no opportunity for that. And so they end up, you know, like the Col Columbine shooters and, yes. and, or like incel shooters or like any number of school shooters or, or mall shooters or what well, today we had what a, a, a subway shooting uh, in New York as we in, speak. In yeah. Yeah. Where, and, and in many of these instances, there's been an analysis uh, the people who have done these things have uh, just have prior to the event been excluded, been rejected, uh, been ignored, felt felt unimportant and unworthy of, of attention. Now, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, I'm not showing sympathy to them. I'm saying that, that this can be a trigger. I don't think it's the only trigger because we all experience ostracism all the time, even mild forms can have an effect on us, but we all experience ostracism on a daily basis where someone appears to be ignoring us or excluding us. But I think chronic ostracism combined with uh, probably some uh, uh, mental uh, disorders of some adjustment disorder, even yeah, some kind of adjustment disorders and combined with the access to weapons, that, that, that forms a lethal cocktail. And so I don't think it's a typical response to ostracism, but for certain individuals who are, uh, don't seem to have a way out and, and, and feel uh, completely invisible to other people, and, and, and they, they have disorders of, of some sort, and they have a way to, to enact the revenge, that, that's what we, we end up seeing. So a third way to react is self-isolation, where you, uh, uh, you prevent yourself from any further opportunity to be ostracized by being by yourself, by being alone, by not allowing the possibility for rejection, exclusion, ostracism. And uh, this also allows a person to regain some of the needs that have been threatened. It gives them control, sort of like, you can't fire me, I quit. Uh, and so... You, you end up taking control of the situation and, and preventing ostracism by, by not allowing it to even happen in the first place. We know that some people become what we call rejection sensitive and that mm -hmm. they experience rejection and exclusion early in their life. And then they expect it when, to happen all the time. And so they are always on the lookout and then they prevent themselves from getting in a situation where they could be rejected and they see it when it's not happening and all sorts of things like that. So obviously uh, self-isolating and being aggressive are 
need while both of them fulfill a sense of, of some of the or, or fortify some of the needs, neither one of them lead to re-inclusion. The first one, becoming socially susceptible and going along to get along, that's obviously one way to end the ostracism, but it's not necessarily a good way because you become a bit spineless and, and you lose your sense of values and character and you just become what other people want. But the other two kind of almost perpetuate more ostracism because we know that bullies are ostracized. We know that people that self-isolate are ostracized. And so it's a, a downward spiral for them. So, yeah. Now, uh, so I've talked about two stages, the reflexive stage, the second stage where we have a variety of ways to deal with and cope with and, and, and uh, with, with ostracism, and which can also affect how long it kind of stays with you. Uh, that's called the reflective stage, where you're reflecting upon what happened and try to cope with it. The third stage doesn't occur for everybody, but there are people who experience chronic ostracism or long-term ostracism, uh, where it happens for a long period of time, days, weeks, months, years, decades. And so, uh, and, and this can happen uh, when we talk to people and do interviews, we see this mostly being a family dynamic where you're ostracized from your family, your kids, your parents, your sisters, your brothers for, for long periods of time. It can happen in romantic relationships as well. Uh, it can happen in one's workplace and in church uh, as well. So we have a, a lot of examples of this long-term ostracism. Um, we the, the one woman that you mentioned, uh, she did something that made her husband angry when she was about 25, and he stopped talking to her. And he didn't talk to her again for 40 years. Uh, oh, my goodness. And then he died. Uh, and then, of course, you know, when you're interviewing somebody and they're telling you this, you're sort of like, oh, my, how could anybody put up with that? Or, or why would anybody stay in a relationship where they were not looked at or talked to or responded to or not? And they did, and didn't eat with her either uh, uh, for 40 years. And she said, uh, at least I had a roof over my head. Uh, and what what this chronic stage, this four, third stage, is, I call the resignation stage is you no longer seem to be trying to fortify the, the threatened needs, but instead you uh, a loss of belonging turns into alienation. A loss of self-esteem turns into uh, a, a depression. Uh, a loss of control also uh, leads to uh, a, a depression as well. And then, So one uh, quick clarification here. <laughs> who is experiencing this? The husband who actually alienated his wife or the wife who was subjected to this ostracism? The wife. But then what's happening psychologically to the husband who's inflicting this kind of pain? Right. Uh, right? Right. So you feel a sense of worthlessness and, and you, it's hard to crawl back out of that. And that's what the big question is, how do you get out of the resignation stage? And I think therapy is, is or having supportive networks is the only way to, to get out of that. But uh, how it affects him, of course, we didn't know, right? Because he, yes, he's he was gone. But, um, but we have talked to people who do use it a lot or have used it a, a long time on people. Uh, and, and you end up with a kind of a different batches of people. Uh, there are some, one woman said, uh, my husband is an attorney. He is excellent at arguing. He wins every argument we ever have. 
But when I started giving him the silent treatment, he would grovel back to me and apologize, even if he didn't know what he did wrong. And and I took control. She she said it's the best thing since sliced bread. I mean, so she oh my goodness she, she found it particularly powerful and effective in her situation with her husband. Other people have recognized that it has ruined their relationships. Uh, they they started using the silent treatment and they had a difficult time stop using it. Uh, stopping to use it. Uh, as you, you said, how your father might have been thinking is I had this one father write this incredibly eloquent analysis where his son said something that was so disturbing and upsetting to the father that he just was speechless. And then he kind of continued thinking about how awful this thing was that his son said, and he wouldn't talk to his son. He, that turned into the daily silent treatment. He wouldn't he would make dinner for everybody else, but not his son. He wouldn't. He, they wouldn't eat together, and he wouldn't answer anything his son said, and he wouldn't uh, say anything to his son at all. And he said he noticed over time that, on the one hand, he knew his son was turning into, in his words, a spineless jellyfish, and and it was really damaging his psyche. Uh, on the other hand, he says I kept. It was such an out of character thing for me to do that I kept having to tell myself why I was doing it. So I kept having to relive that initial thing that made me so angry. And then I'd get angry again. And that would kind of allow me to continue giving him the silent treatment. And also to start talking would be sort of an admission that I had been behaving childishly or, or inappropriately. And so it was sort of giving in. So pride kept him from breaking, from breaking the silence. And I think through discussions with his wife on how damaging they were seeing, how it was affecting their son, he finally forced himself little by little by giving, he'd say, please or thank you or excuse me to maybe some monosyllabic sentences to finally talking. And, and the son just, you know, came back. Uh, and and wow. it was, but, you know, and then some people said they, they, they're, they're, they used to be a confronter, but then they got married to somebody that gave them the silent treatment all the time. And the only, and they try to confront, but it, as you said, there's nothing you can do or say. It was, it's like talking to a wall. And so then you end up responding with the silent treatment. And so we were noticing in our interviews that a lot of people, even who are confronters initially, if they are with somebody that, get, that gives the, the silent treatment all the time, they then became someone that gave the silent treatment all the time. And so, um, God, so quote, complicated. Quote Paul Simon, silence like a cancer grows uh, from the sounds of silence. So, uh, you know, we, it, it, there's other examples that someone that comes to mind that sounds like what you endured is that this one woman's father kind of would go through a cycle. He would get angry. He would things would be fine for a little bit, and then she'd do something that would make him mad, and he'd blow up and get really mad at her. And then he would give her the silent treatment, and and this would just be a cycle all the time. She'd be eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and this is what he did all the time. And his silent treatment episodes lasted six months. Oh my goodness! And and then finally they'd get something would happen that they'd start talking again, but then it would happen again, and it's just over and over again, and. 
she said when she was in, in her mid twenties, her father had a was in the hospital and was dying, and it was in the middle of one of these silent treatment episodes. And she thought, I, I I need to go see him anyway. And so she knocked on the hospital door, and 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 he looked over, and she goes, Daddy, don't leave me. And he looked away, and he still wouldn't respond to her. And you know these interviews are are heart wrenching. Um, God, you're doing such painful work. Oh I know. Goodness. I mean, we, we we had tissues in the interview room uh, for both the interviewer and the interviewee. Um, they're just extraordinarily difficult. This is like war stories. Oh my yeah. God, so painful. And and just to balance it out a little bit. There are times where there'd be somebody in the interview who is so, I mean, so obnoxious and so entitled and so self-absorbed that you kind of, in the back of your head, are thinking, well, I know why you're being ostracized. So it's not always, yes, yes. you know, a victim. I mean, and, and indeed, there's research that so, shows that people who are chronically disagreeable and chronically uh, low in conscientiousness are more likely to be ostracized. Um, uh, but people get ostracized lots of times, not because of those reasons. And most of us experience it, uh, not because we're low on agreeableness or conscientiousness. It's, it's because of some factors, some characteristics of the, of the other person as well. Um, but yeah, these, these, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, we're really interested in how the, the silent treatment in particular which is like a dyadic form of, of ostracism, how that emerges, why it emerges, and how it affects the relationship. And uh, it's, you know, and, and there's even thera- therapists that'll say, you know, when you're really angry, you should separate. You should not talk for a while because you might say something that does permanent damage that you would re- regret saying, and you might physically do something that you would regret doing. And so separate. And, and I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think having a physical separation is, is probably a good idea when things get imp- explosive, when, when things are really bad. Um, but uh, so two thoughts there. One is that physically separating is different than emotionally and socially separating, where you're in the same room and not responding and not looking. And one of my students, Lisa Zadro, she, she comes from an Italian family where it was used a lot in her family, and, and she called it the noisy silent treatment. So not only are they giving you the silent treatment, but they're stomping around the room and slamming the doors and slamming the cupboards. Um, so my, It reminds me of my mother who used to go from one room to the other. She would never do this directly, but she says, God, what have I done to deserve these children? And she would just walk from one room to the other, um, and but never address us, never talk to us. And it was very, yeah, I love that noisy, silent treatment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I do think that um, sometimes a period of silence is a good thing, but this is what I think is difficult. I think when you don't preface it or frame it with it and give it a time constraint, I think it has that capability of perpetuating and being hard to stop using if you're the one that's doing it. So what I think is important is to say, I am so angry right now that I'm afraid of what I'm going to say or do, or, or however you want to put it and say, I need some time not to talk. I, I, you, you, know, you can leave or you can just stay in the same house, but you say, let's, let's agree not to talk for 
you know, an hour or a day or whatever, but give it a, an end. Give it, give yes. us a point where now, okay, now we can talk again. If you don't say that, if you don't, if you just go into the silent treatment without any kind of explanation, it's really hard for them to know what's going on and how to respond. And it's really hard for you to start talking again. And so if you can recognize that you're going to go into to the silent treatment, then then allow yourself a way to get back in by giving a, a, a time's up kind of a thing and say, okay, let's, let's, we, let's talk again at tonight at five or whatever. Uh, and I think that that possibly mm-hmm. could be a helpful thing, but typically the silent treatment is not given with those kind of instructions and is not even, you're not even sure why it's happening. You come home, your partner's not talking to you. You go, what's wrong? They might say nothing, you know, in that kind of, way or they might not answer and then you're left trying to guess what you did wrong and you might generate all the bad things you've done in the last couple of days which drives your self-esteem down as well and and you don't even know what it is and that 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 makes it even all the worse if you knew exactly what it was you did you could apologize you could you could at least constrain correct the course yeah <laughs> everything you're thinking about to that that thing that you did but often the silent treatment unlike an argument or a physical altercation, it's not clear what the cause is. You know, as uh, as I'm listening to you, I was uh, you kind of have summed up nice uh, solutions here. Uh, but basically, mm-hmm. people need skills to handle conflict, stress, and disagreements. You know, resorting to silent treatment is using the power to withhold one's own role uh, uh, in causing the disharmony or even addressing the disharmony. Uh, and uh, showing no agency to move forward. Um, so I, and and you're you're saying that people just need. I mean, it it is in fact you know activating your prefrontal cortex. Like, how can I have different outcomes now that I'm in the middle of a chaos or disharmony? You know, uh, something needs to change. And silent treatment is really postponing uh, taking of action. I mean, it could be a couple different reasons. One is that you're so hurt that you that that you're you don't want you you just disengage from the person. You just you the emotion. You're so emotionally upset that you shut down, and mm-hmm. and you don't and and that, and that then you're so in that sense you're not controlling your emotions or how how to respond, and, and you're just letting them kind of completely overpower you. But the other one is that. I am so angry. I'm going to use this method to shut them down. Mm. Uh, and it's not, and, and, and you know, it, it, it's powerful. You know, it's hurtful. Uh, but at the same time, the silent treatment, unlike an argument where you can say some really mean things or a physical argument where you could hurt somebody and get and do something physically damaging is it's deniable. You can say, I never said anything bad. I never did. You're making this up. You know, you're imagining it. Um, you know, it, 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 one reason, you know, like I, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, but w- it, with whistleblowers at companies, there's a whole book on how the companies react to whistleblowers and it, they do terrible things that the, the employees have killed their dogs. They've, they've sent them to another organization. They sent them down the, to a windowless room. They've demoted them all, all these things, many of which are now against the law, but at the preface of the book, uh, the author said, everybody is ostracized. They don't even bother 
this was before my work. They, they didn't even bother talking, you know, going into that because that was the, the common response for everybody there was, was, was they were ostracized. And uh, the reason, you know, the rest of this of demotion, all those things are against the law now, but it's not against the law to not talk to somebody or to not answer them or to not include them on, on things. And so, and it's it, also private and invisible. Yeah, it, so, so this can, treatment is not aggressing. So you're not sending bad emails. You're just not you're excluding them. You're yeah. ignoring them. So uh, you're basically uh, it, it, you're being able to get away with something that you you couldn't get away with doing it in another way. And like, say you're angry with your spouse, and you go out to dinner with four couples at a dinner table. You could, if you obviously, if you physically assault your spouse, everybody's going to know it. If you are mean to your spouse and say mean things to them, everybody's going to know it. And then you're going to pay the, pay the price of being the bad guy. If you don't talk to your spouse and you're very gregarious with everybody else, they won't even know you're giving your partner the silent treatment. She will know or he will know that you're giving them the silent treatment, but you can get away with it in that setting and no one will even know it. So it, 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 ha- it could be used very strategically, as I guess is what I'm saying in that. Yes. Which maybe is is part of executive control. You know, I mean, you, you could be thoughtfully doing it because it's a way to punish without paying the price of punishing. And I think that's one of the dangers uh, of it. And and it makes my work harder because when I give people when I give talks on this, I I am generally wanting people to be less likely to give people a silent treatment. I would like people to include other people. But I do get the occasional person will write me and say, wow, I didn't realize how powerful it is. And now I'm using it on my kid. And I, I just shake my head. So, you know, it, uh, it <laughs> <laughs> you said, no, 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 that's not what it is. About. <laughs> I think in general, people become more aware of what they're doing and are less likely to ostracize after they know about it. But there are it is a form of cruelty, ultimately, you know, there are a few people who just go the wrong direction with it. Yeah, it is cruelty. Well, uh, this has been so much fun. And I know I can talk easily for another hour, uh, but I'm being very mindful of your time. Uh, So as we close, I was curious if you have some recommendations uh, of any books that you have found uh, interesting and useful and very meaningful. And particularly amongst all the writing you have done, what book would you recommend of, of your own work uh, that it will be valuable for people, those who are interested to explore this topic further? Um, okay. Well, thank you for, for allowing me to talk about my book. I do have a book, as you mentioned, uh, uh, the ostracism, the power of silence. And uh, I, I, this was written back in 2000, but it, covers a lot of what I've talked about today and a lot of interviews with people uh, who have been ostracized for a long time or who have ostracized others habitually, uh, as well as all the experiments that I've done. Uh, We've certainly done a lot of work since then, but I haven't written another uh, book uh, as a, as an author. I've edited many books that, uh, that have to deal with more recent discoveries in ostracism, which are, we have chapters by other researchers from all over the world contributing to this uh, topic. It's become a pretty uh, popular topic for researchers to, to, to look at. Um, I continue, I, I've talked with some clinical 
uh, colleagues about writing a book that has more to do with what to do and how to deal with it and, you know, healthy ways to respond to it and healthy ways to avoid using it. Haven't written the book yet. I'm going to probably save that for my retirement. Um, (laughs) As as far as I I don't read, you know, when I read, I read fiction. Uh, oh, yeah? because, because otherwise all I'm reading all the time is research. And I, so I don't really go out and read uh, like self-help books and things like that. I am reading a book right now called the, uh, daily, the, the, uh, let's see, the invisibility of Addie LaRue, the invisible life of Addie LaRue. And, and that attracted to me because people feel invisible when they're ostracized. We've actually had participants in the lab pinch themselves. Uh, there's a, an, another study that shows that people would like re- prefer to shock themselves. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, so so th- just to, to remind themselves that they exist, they'll, they'll do these sort of things. Uh, and, and then the book that I'm reading right now, people forget her within 10 minutes of uh, when, when she leaves, they, they, they don't remember. And so she's, her whole life, and her life is longer than a typical lifespan because of other aspects of the book, but she is basically invisible to people. And I, I, I love reading uh, literature where feelings of invisibility uh, and, and feelings that, that one is, is not worthy of other people's attention is the focus of the book. And, and you get a real insight, I think, uh, you know, a lot of times I think fiction writers have a, a really good handle on on things that researchers uh, obfuscate with, with with their writing. So I, I'm enjoying that book right now. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much. All right. That's all the time we have today. Thank you again, Dr. Williams, for being my guest. Uh, as Thank listeners, you. you can see, these are important conversations we are having with world-renowned experts, uh, incredible knowledge and passion Uh, that helps us think a little differently. And I hope you belong to those categories of people who will pause and reflect and definitely not engage in silent treatment and and save somebody from deep suffering that comes with it. Uh, So as we close, uh, here are a few things you can do. If you love what you're listening and hearing, please share this episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. And definitely, if you have time, leave us a review. That way people can find us more easily. Uh, Once again, thank you so much for joining me today. And I look forward to seeing you again right here next time on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.